Good morning. Today we're in Mark 11, verses 12 through 25. It is on page 847 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, being Jesus, was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And the And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have any, anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are, we would join with those brothers and sisters around the world that would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. And as we turn now to you, I pray that our hearts would receive that word you have for us. We lift up the pastor to the preaching and the hearts to the hearing. And we pray that we would be careful to give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles if you're not already there to Mark 11. It's a joy to be able to open the Word of God with you this morning and proclaim the truth. 
In our home, we, I don't have a, a lot of time uh, to spend uh, watching a, a movie or a television show, not to say that I wouldn't like some time to do that, but I don't have too much time. But every once in a while, my wife and I have found enjoyment watching cooking shows. And uh, the one that we are currently on is The Great Irish Bake Off. I don't know if you've ever heard or seen The Great Irish Bake Off because it's in Ireland, a little different than America. But for the first couple of shows that you watch, you find yourself going, what is that ingredient? I've never even heard of it. Wow, that looks really good. I've never even heard of that name or that word. And then you watch a couple more shows and you find yourself going, well, I can see how they did that a little bit. I still don't necessarily understand all the terminology, but I I can understand how they did that. And inevitably, you have those people who are learning how to bake, and the more they do it, and they have someone critiquing them, or have someone helping them or coaching them, you find that as the show goes along, the person gets better and better and better. Well, not unlike that, we come to Scripture oftentimes, and we might look at something and we say, Well, I don't understand that. That seems odd. I've never heard of that term. What do I do with this? What do I do with that? And so we go to Scripture, or we particularly go to this morning, and we look at a passage of Scripture, and we find that as we stare at it a little more, as we open it, as we look around it, as we sort of take in all that is going on, we find that, ah, we can understand these things. We can do this as well. And that's one of the great benefits of studying Scripture verse by verse. Because as you go verse by verse through Scripture, Sunday morning after Sunday morning, you begin to find yourself coming to difficult passages, like even the one we have this morning, and say, well, that doesn't seem quite as difficult. Because we've been doing this over and over and over again. Well, we come to a difficult passage this morning, one that has, I'm afraid, been used and even abused by many, and that abuse of passages like this, unfortunately, I think has led some of us, myself included, to even be a little shy at some of the difficult passages, particularly one that we have in front of us this morning. But I trust that as we study, we can proclaim the truth in confidence. And really, when you sum the truth up of this passage you find it's not that difficult. Here's what I believe we will gain as sort of a wholehearted statement of this passage. Faith in God bears good fruit when the forgiveness of God through the power of Christ is displayed in acts of true worship such as prayer, forgiveness, and the proclamation of Christ for all nations. Well, that doesn't seem that scary. So how do we arrive to that understanding of the word. Well, that's what we will spend our time on. As we study the Bible, particularly verse by verse, it's helpful for us to know what type of literature we're in. And most of Mark is a narrative or a discourse literature. So we have this storytelling. And think of a story. You sort of start with a scene and things build and build and build and then you get to the climax of the scene and it ends when you sort of begin another scene. And a lot of times in that storytelling, you'll have somebody speak some words or give some truth. And that's what we have here this morning. We have this story here you see in verse 12. It starts on the following day, and then it sort of crescendos up 
We have some same analogies and terminology of this fig tree and we end with this truth and we know that that particular portion of narrative storytelling is over because we see that they change scenes again in verse 27 of Mark 11. So let's look at this. As I mentioned in my welcome and announcement this morning, I'm going to take this in four chunks. And if you're taking notes, it might be helpful for you to know I'm just going to use F. They're not particular to any particular truth in the passage. It's just helpful for us by organization. So we'll have figs, and then we'll have fear, then we'll have faith, and we'll have forgiveness. It's not hard to see those four Fs in the passage The first one, figs, we see this in verse 12 through 14, and we get the context of 12 through 14 in verse 11. Let's just note that Christ has come in, triumphal entry, he comes into Jerusalem, and we noted two weeks ago for Easter that it's sort of anticlimactic. Comes in, we want to anoint you as king, take over the Romans, and yet he enters Jerusalem, goes into the temple sort of scouts things out and then leaves. What is he doing? Well, we see what he's doing even this morning. On the following day, verse 12, they were coming from Bethany, going back into Jerusalem. Christ is hungry, and he sees this fig tree off in a distance. Fig tree, figs, comes to it. There is no figs because it was not the right season. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. It seems a bit difficult, right? Why is he cursing the innocent fig tree when he knows it's not the season for figs? Christ never does anything without a particular purpose, and he is teaching something here. The fig tree, it's helpful to understand, is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for Israel, and it's standing before God. You see that throughout the Old Testament. The fig tree is used as a metaphor, and sometimes it's used to note a stance of blessing before God or a stance of judgment. And just quickly, let me look, let me take you, no need to turn there, but just jot them down, some verses that note some of this. 1 Kings 4.25, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. There's the note of blessing by use of the word, uh, the, the, the metaphor of fig tree. You also have in Psalm 105, 33. Now the fig tree used in judgment. God speaking about his judgment upon, Israel, upon Egypt while Israel was enslaved. God says, he smote their vines also and their fig trees and break the trees of their coast. Another one, Amos chapter 4, verse 9. God saying, I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees. The fig tree is a metaphor for how the relationship of Israel is going with God. And we wonder even if Christ coming upon this fig tree didn't think of Micah 7, 1 and 2, where it says, Woe is me, for I have become... For I have come as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. The fig tree is a metaphor for 
the relationship of Israel with Christ. Just turn in your Bibles now, just quickly, just to help us better understand that, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, just turn there quickly, keeping your finger in Mark 11. Luke chapter 19, we have a bit of of Luke that is not recorded in Mark, but that helps us understand this fig tree and what Christ is doing with it as a metaphor, as a teaching tool. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. We're right in the middle of cleansing the temple and the triumphal entry, which is right where we are in Mark 11. Christ, and when he drew near to the city, Jerusalem, Christ wept over the city, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, speaking of Jerusalem. But now they are hidden for your eyes, from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Mark 11. Simply put here, the king is pronouncing a judgment on the fig tree and in anticipation of a judgment upon the temple. The fig tree is simply the picture of what Christ sees in the temple of verse 11. So in verse 11 of Mark chapter 11, he goes in the temple and he does not see fruit. Here he comes to the fig tree and he does not see fruit. You notice he says he sees it from a distance. From a distance, this tree was colorful and looked vibrant and healthy. And from a distance, the temple looked vibrant and busy, the work of religion going on, the work of worship taking place, and yet the king, Christ, coming to closer examination, finds a much different picture, namely, does not find fruit. Here in Mark, we have this fig tree used as a picture of judgment by God upon the fruitless Jewish people, and that's not anything new. We looked earlier in the year to Mark 7, verse 6, where Christ told the people that the people, the, fair, the Jewish people, honored me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Hypocrisy. The fig tree, it looked good. It talked a good game. It gave testimony to the right things. And yet there is no fruit. That's what he was looking for in the Jewish people. True worshipers, as he told the woman at the well. And the king, Jesus Christ, ruling, risen, reigning, is still looking for true worshipers. He's looking for true worshipers here at FCF. Christianity is not, following Christ, is is not meant to be some sort of feel-good therapy. You don't come to Sunday morning because it's the social club. It's not an organization that you kind of got to drop your dues into the box. It's not some sort of band-aid for when we fail in sin and we say, you know, don't, don't, don't be too hard on yourself. You're okay. No, the king is looking for true worshipers. The king requires and desires full submission. Not, not tomorrow. Not next week. Today, even now, Your king who bought you by his blood, who ransomed you from death. He didn't do so that we might parade around doing whatever we want. We're blood-bought children to be in full submission to him, to serve him. 
And so Christianity isn't meant to be some sort of passive, tame, socially polite thing. I think one of the pictures here of anti that is John the Baptist. Can you imagine John the Baptist? This band of leather and clothes and eating honey and wild-eyed and why? Because he saw an urgent need for the, for the today, for now, for the work of Christ and even should be the same as us. I'm not suggesting that you tear your robes and put on this and take on the vegan diet of honey and locusts. The pronouncement here of judgment upon the fig tree is symbolic, but is mild compared to what was deserved and is even deserved. The fig tree will come back into the narrative here in a few minutes, in a few verses, but realizing the symbolism of the fig tree helps us to understand what happens in these next few verses. Let's look at not just the figs, but let's look at fear. Verse 15 through 19. They come to Jerusalem. He enters the temple and begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. You get a picture here of Christ coming back into the temple. It's a busy, busy place. Uh, this would have been the, probably the forecourt that he would have come into. And, and here you have uh, many people, tables even set up, allowing the pilgrims that are coming in for the festiv- festivities to change their respective currencies over to the right currency in order to buy the appropriate animals for sacrifice and to pay the temple tax. And so you can sort of just sort of picture for us this morning, you picture the foyer here full of tables, not just one table in the middle or off to the side, but full of tables to the point that you really can't get into the building. You've got not just people lined up, you've got people spilling out and there's this blockage in order to be able to get in. That forecourt was to be the area given for the Gentiles to come and pray. And so here the Gentiles can't even come and worship God aright because of what is going on. Their business there of respect changing currency and stuff, which was oftentimes a corrupt business, was preventing the nations, namely the Gentiles, from worshiping God. And we have, we have thoughts here of Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger. He will come prepare the way before me. That's speaking of John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And here Christ suddenly comes into the temple. And he comes in and he, he executes judgment. That passage that is quoted there, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, is from Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. Let me read that for you. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath, does not profane it, holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. 
For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah 56 is speaking about the salvation that we have and that others have outside of Israel. Salvation for the foreigners. Salvation that can come to those, all who are welcome, who seek God aright. To seek God as he has determined. And they're being prevented from doing so. And even then, not just preventing others from doing so, they're turning the place into a a den of robbers. And he clears house. He does so quickly. He executes judgment quickly. A foreshadowing of the judgment that was to come upon the temple. The scribes and the chief priests, they fear him. And yet they do fear him for all the wrong reasons. They fear him for their, their loss of, of money, their loss of power. And I wonder this morning, do you fear God for all the right reasons? Do we fear God for the right reasons? Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm a Christian. I don't need to fear God anymore. Yes, you do. Because fearing God, a right, pushes you to find, yet again, the steadfast faithfulness of Christ for you. For us today, there is no longer a temple, a building by which we must go and worship God. And yet, 1 Corinthians 6.19, we know now that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so for us this morning even, we have the reminder of the importance of right worship. The importance of prayer as an evidence of right worship. Even for the church today corporately, that we should be about the business of prayer as the body of Christ. Why? Because if we aren't praying, then are we really living out faith-based, true worship relationship with God? Or we could put it this way, if we aren't praying, who are we depending on? Because when we pray, we do so as evidence of our complete and utter dependence on God. We pray then, not to change God who is perfect and holy, but to change us. Christ even, for us today, must come and clean house in the human heart of false worship. The work of Christ's blood washing a sinner's heart clean in regeneration, in rebirth, is the only work that saves If Christ does not come and clean house and do a work of rebirth, there is no salvation in any other name other than in Christ. So people can come to church. People can read their Bibles. People can can give money to the church, to charity, can go on missions trips. Give to missions trips. Give to charity. And yet, none of that saves. None of it saves. Those things actually are powerless to save. Those things actually can be simply religious busyness unless rooted and springing forth from the saving power of Christ. Think of John 15 here. The vine and the branches. Are those things that I mentioned bad? No, but they spring forth as fruit from the vine. The fear of Jesus by the chief priests and scribes was one of fear of losing their power, their wealth, their prestige, and their fear drove them to rebellion against the authority of Christ. Fear, my friends, is not a bad thing. For those of us in Christ, fear drives us to faith. 
And that's wonderful. Point number three, let's look at faith. This is 20 through 24. 20 through 24, notice as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Remember, we said that the fig tree is a metaphor. Well, just flipping your Bible, maybe one page over, this is the context that we see of chapter 13, 1 and 2. As they came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, same language, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Look, teacher, the fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. Look, teacher, wonderful stones, wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 20 and 21 of Mark 11 here, noting the judgment that is to come. They see the example of the swiftness of of judgment. You could come to my house and um, if you have been to my house over the years, there's this, I have a, a gorgeous oak tree kind of back of the property and if you just come over the years, you would have looked at that tree and said, oh, that's beautiful and that's healthy and that's wonderful. And over the years, you would have seen, oh, there's a little moss. Oh, that's, but it's still beautiful. And there's this process and four or five years later, you could walk in now and say, that tree's dead. But you would have understood because you would have just sort of seen the process. That's just the normal way of, of creation. And so how stark is the picture of the disciples who walk upon a tree and are thinking naturally. This fig tree didn't just go from sort of, yeah, it's going to die. Maybe there's a few branches that are starting to die off and break apart to a little bit of rot to now dead over a process of time. Immediately, this thing, the swiftness of the judgment that was there, bypassing the natural. And we see here a picture, a a metaphor of God demanding and dealing justly and swiftly with true or false faith, indicated by true or false worship. And so then it's it's not difficult for understanding, verse 23, where Christ then pronounces, have faith in God. Because Christ has been noting faith and unbelief all along in our study of the Gospel of Mark. He started back in 1 verse 15, chapter 1 verse 15, repent and believe calling people to faith, belief in Jesus Christ. He talked about it in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. You can go all the way back through our study in the Mark and find passages where it talks about faith, talks about belief or unbelief. Why? Because faith in Christ, faith in God, is the only means of access to the forgiveness of God. Have faith in God, Christ says. Do you have faith in God? Well, then the question is, what is faith? Because that's sort of a catch word, right? We tell people all the time, have faith, brother. Have faith. What is faith? The question really for us is not what is faith, but who is the object of our faith? It must be God, right? Faith is not Proper faith is not faith in ourselves or or faith even in our faith. The power of faith is always in the object of one's faith. You can think of Hebrews 11. It was counted unto them unto righteousness. They had faith in God. Have faith 
in God. Truly I say to whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. You ever seen a mountain thrown into the ocean? I haven't. In fact, I looked up this morning and this is an atheist proof text. Why you should not believe in God. Because you've never seen a mountain thrown into the ocean. I've never seen a, a mountain thrown into the ocean. What is being talked about here? Are we really people of faith? Should we be going to Enchanted Rock every Sunday afternoon and standing at the base of it and saying, mountain move, right? And it doesn't? And then what? Did you just not have enough faith? It's a figure of speech. It was actually even noted at that point in time that was sort of a a figure of speech even at that time. It was noting the impossible. Something extraordinary happened. And this isn't the first time Christ has used this type of speech. Camel through the eye of a needle, right? Using hyperbole, using speech that doesn't make any sense to illustrate a greater point. Namely, have faith in the God of impossibilities. Have faith in the God of impossibilities that is in your God and as, it, as is and was the God of the disciples. That's what he's telling them. Have faith that God can do through you, wonderful and impossible things. Through prayer. Think of the uh, disciples. Just, there's, just by way of one example. Think of uh, Peter and John. Acts chapter 3. They walk into the temple. And the man holds out his, alm, his palm and asks for an alm. And this is what Peter did say. Can you imagine Peter? Kind of look at John going... Faith, move mountains, okay, here goes nothing. Let's see what happens. No, they believed in God. They believed God can do things. So they said, look, I don't have anything for you, but this is what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And they, he rose up and walked. Is it, was it them? Was it their faith? No, it was the object of their faith, namely God, that did the work of impossibilities. And he has continued to do the work of impossibilities. We've seen it back in Mark. We see it even today. Believe that God is the one who created the world around us. Believe that the God who has fashioned you in the womb. Believe in the God who has caused the blind to see and the deaf to hear. Are these not impossibilities? Call on that God in faith. Meaning then, if the God of the universe who is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-caring, all-loving, all-just, is your God this morning, why would you ever limit your prayers to simple things? That's what he's saying. Your faith is rooted in God, the God. So call out to him in faith. Well, you and I would probably both know that this text is oftentimes used, maybe even as a proof text for a prosperity gospel. Sister, you just don't have enough faith. That you could get that whatever you wanted because you didn't. That's not what he's saying here, is it? And yet let's not move off the truth that your God is the God of impossibilities too quickly for fear of getting the passage wrong. There's plenty of ways to use this passage in a wrong way, but using the passage as a truth that God, the, the God of impossibilities is your God and you have access to him by faith through prayer is not a wrong way to use this. 
Well, let's, let's decry the myth that your faith is the one that does all the work. And how are we going to decry that? Through the example of Christ. How did Christ use prayer? Let's just go in our Bible to one example. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Turn there with me. For Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Look at the example of Christ. He's in the garden. He is greatly distressed and troubled. Sorrowful even to death, 34. He goes a little farther, he falls on the ground and he prays. That if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. It wasn't removed. What does that mean? Christ didn't have enough faith? Can we look at Christ and say, God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, you just didn't have enough faith. Because Mark 11 says that if you had enough faith, then that mountain would have been moved and that cup would have been taken from you. You just didn't have enough faith. No, we wouldn't say that. Because look how Christ responds. It's not our faith. It's the object of our faith. Remove this cup from you, yet not what I will, but what you will. Matthew 6, 9 through 10, right? We can think of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Acknowledging that God is sovereign and over all of these things. And so we're submitting then our prayer in faith to the God who knows best over all things. And so our prayer of faith is never the prayer of selfishness. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Key point then, if you don't believe in God, then you will have no need to pray or no need for faith that he will act. This verse is not saying if you believe enough, you get what you believe in or what you want. Meaning this verse is saying you're praying the prayer of faith, that you know that God who's sovereign over all things, his will is perfect and he will do that which is according to his will and way. So, when Christ comes to this fig tree, does not find fruit, declares that there must be fruit and pronounces judgment as a metaphor for the judgment that is to come to the false worship and unbelief of the Jews. When Christ comes to examine your heart on that last day, what will he find? Will Christ find fruit? Or unbelief. We're not to ask for things in selfishness. James, the book of James helps us with this. 4 verse 3, you ask, do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Brothers and sisters, we pray to the almighty God. And we pray in wholehearted faith that God moves. And yet we pray not to move God to do what we want. But to move us toward God to see more clearly what he wants. And so it's important to even pray truth, pray scripture, to remind ourselves that God's way is not our ways. Be confident. Those who trust God for the right things and the right way can have confidence that God will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. William Lane says this, 
When prayer is the source of faith's power and the means of its strength, God's sovereignty is its only restriction. That's helpful and that is needed. When prayer is the source of faith's power and the means of its strength, God's sovereignty is its only restriction. Brothers and sisters, you serve a God of impossibilities. You serve a God who can move mountains. You serve a God who can create all things by his word. We should not be neglecting to pray in faith, but in full submission to his perfect and wonderful sovereignty. Finally, in closing, last few minutes here, forgiveness, verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So we've looked at figs, we've looked at fruit, excuse me, faith, fruit, now forgiveness, fruit born from faith looks like prayer and looks like forgiveness, very simply. Fruit born from faith looks like prayer and looks like forgiveness. Trusting God to move, then, whatever mountain needs to be moved that is hindering fruitfulness. You believe in a God of impossibilities. Why should we not then pray in faith that God will move even the mountain of blockage in our own hearts that keeps us from bearing good fruit? And forgiveness toward others may be that very mountain. It may be lust. It may be anxiety. It may be jealousy. It may be anger. But we go to God by the blood of Christ to see his power manifested in our lives. What's a a bigger mountain to move in prayer? A physical mountain or forgiveness? I'll take forgiveness. What's a bigger miracle? A mountain moving or the human heart of sin, the human heart of stone being made into a heart of flesh, into a saved, washed, regenerated heart by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a no-brainer. It's the heart that's the greater miracle. Is this verse stating that God won't forgive us if we don't forgive others? Well, yes and no. God won't forgive us if we aren't in Christ. Only through the work of Christ do we find forgiveness for our sins. And if we are in Christ, then one fruitful sign will be that we will forgive others. Not perfectly, but we will forgive others. Faith in God bears good fruit when the forgiveness of God through the power of Christ is displayed in acts of true worship, such as prayer, forgiveness, and the proclamation of Christ for all the nations. False faith then finds future hope in the faithfulness of God. But false faith finds also future eternal punishment in the faithfulness of God. Unforgiveness, forgiveness held back from others around us is bad fruit. For the one who has had the impossible done, namely the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, forgiveness granted to us, by God through Christ, why would we hold back forgiveness from another? That's the fruit. That's, that's one of the fruits of faith in God. And we know that Christ is coming again. We know that Christ is coming again to judge. And when he does, he will judge on the basis of faith or unbelief.
Belief and unbelief. And how will we know you have fruit? What does that fruit look like? You have your Bible. Go read it. Go look it up. Plunge yourself back into Christ. Plunge yourself in the Word. If you today find a wonder, am I bearing fruit? Go read the Bible. Don't come to me. Don't go to church in the sense of that's got to be fruit and I'm going to do that to feel better. No, go find your assurance of saving faith in Jesus Christ as told to you by the Bible. It alone will give you whether or not the fruit you're bearing is the fruit of faith. And for those of us in Christ, our fear continually should and does push us back into wonderful and delightful acknowledgement of God's faithfulness toward us in Christ. This, this picture we have of the fig tree as a metaphor, and then we see it, it taking place in a, in a way in verse 15. We see it in, in short term in the coming of the tearing down of the temple in a couple chapters as Christ foretells that. And we see it in the long term as Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead. And so for us this morning, we have the lesson of the fig tree and we have the joy of knowing that faith in Christ produces fruitfulness, one of them being forgiveness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice to know that we bear fruit for those in Christ, not by some means of our own strength. but by the perfect work of Jesus Christ for us, washing us, regenerating us, rebirthing us from death to life, supplying us with the strength then to take us from a heart that desires our things and our, our pleasures to the pleasures and joy of serving you, our God. Father, we delight to know that faith in God, the object of that faith, you, our God, that you do a work in us by the gift of faith to bear good fruit. Help us, Father, this week. We want to bear good fruit. We want to be those who are fearlessly and fully in submission to your will and your way. Out of love. Out of acknowledgement of the free gift of eternal life. So we ask that you would help us. We thank you for the picture you've given us this morning. The reminder. The promise. Thank you that in Christ we are forgiven. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen.